Hello and welcome to another episode of The Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Christine Engelhardt, literary scholar and blog affiliate of the Journal of History of Ideas. Today I'm interviewing Professor Daniel Gutera Cordero. Professor Cordero is lecturer in African-American Studies and Gender and Sexuality Studies at Princeton University and faculty advisor at Forbes College. Her research focuses on scientific racism and the intellectual history of the Atlantic world. Today we're discussing her first book, She's Weeping, An Intellectual History of Racialized Slavery and Emotions in the Atlantic World, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. She's Weeping examines the intellectual history of scientific racism from its origins in the ancient world through the 18th, 19th and 20th century to our present. Professor Gutara Cordero retraces the trope of slavery in all its metaphoric implications throughout history, presenting findings about the harrowing concept of emotional difference in scientific discourses and how this idea of emotional otherness is upheld to this day through biased white storytelling. A unique and precious element about her book is the addition of a creative writing pieces that frame the different chapters and punctuate this travel of emotional injustice with the vision of a world of emotional justice. Welcome, Professor Gutera Cordero. Uh, thank you so much for joining the GHI podcast in theory and huge admiration for your work. And uh, yeah, today we're going to discuss your book, which is uh, the first study that examines emotional justifications uh, of slavery in ancient medieval world to today and that explores the influences of scientific theories of racialized emotional difference you're tracing back this topic to the agent of racialization. Uh, you're studying from Greek philosophy uh, until the age of exploration and um, to, to nowadays. And you, you achieve, I would say, after reading your book, kind of the revision of a biased perception of emotional differentiation of a unilateral white storytelling. And uh, this is, yeah, really an impressive, uh, huge work you did. Um, yeah, I'd like to, to ask you my first question, which is what brought you to research on racialized slavery and emotions in the Atlantic world? And uh, furthermore, I'd like to ask you, how was it for you to working with primary sources often containing hateful speech <coughs> and racial slur? Thank you so, so much for your kind words and also for this lovely invitation. Um, I would like first to to affirm a, a trigger warning since my book discusses the intellectual history of scientific racism and racialized slavery but to but to answer your questions my long-term research about the intellectual history of scientific racism during the 18th 19th and, and 20th century had taught me that scientific racism has mainly endeavored to foster emotional policing in order to normalize racialized enslavement and colonial exploitation. And so the insistence and profound consequences of these scientific discourses of racialized emotions motivated me to further examine the ties between structural racism and scientific intellectual production, which is why this project ultimately argues that emotional justice and freedom are crucial to conversations about abolition and about reparations. In terms of the sources, I made sure to include a trigger warning in my book that also explains that the quotations of primary sources that I include in my book do not include racial slurs and have a labeled ellipsis instead since as a scholar, I aim for my writing to be an anti-racist safe space. Yeah, sometimes the, the quotations really hit me, really struck me. I was like, yeah, about to, to cry because this is really, oof, yeah, 
I mean, this this is this is the the history uh, you're you're tracing also in in your book. But um, what was um, your um, like as as a professor as a as a scholar? Um, what was your your motivation? Uh, like, how did this project? Uh, how did you develop this this project? Um, like from from a let's say personal point of view or also from a uh from a point of a researcher um uh can you can, can you tell me a little bit more about that that motivation or yes indeed so as i mentioned the my long-term research about the intellectual history of scientific racism had shown me that this is the key driving force that these discourses of racialized emotions are the key driving force of racialized enslavement since its inception to contemporary times so within this research then that that led me to have uh that be my priority as a scholar um in terms of denouncing this painful history and also it became, uh, it has become my also priority for my future projects as well. Just to, to dive a little bit deeper into um, to the topic, um, can you describe the origins and framework of scientific racism and also the stylization, fetishization of um, emotional, um, emotional differentiation? Um, yes, so while scientific racism escalated in the 18th century, my book traces the origins of the intellectual history of scientific racism to the ancient world, to ancient precedents, since ancient Greco-Roman philosophy concocted an emotional economy premised on the exploitation of the quote-unquote naturally enslaved for being both quote-unquote, emotionally different and, quote-unquote, biologically recognizable. So both Platonic and Aristotelian thought spread ideas about, quote-unquote, quality of men and of bodies that were projected as being identifiably dissimilar, setting therefore a racialist precedent for the future biological frameworks of the intellectual history of scientific racism. Can you, can you explain the, the choice of the title of your book, um, the, the term weeping, um, which Johann Blumen, you're citing Blumenbach's racialized binary, um, also Darwinism, um, like the, the implications, the various implications of the term weeping um, in throughout history. Um, also, um, may I cite you when you say in the, at the end of your book, Black Tears Matter as a proclamation for emotional black freedom, let's say. Um, uh, why why this, this kind of um, poetic uh, title, She's Weeping? Yes, so the title is actually tied to a bit of creative writing that I integrated in the book. Each chapter has an italicized fragment of creative writing. So the title um, also, the title represents what the book explores and what the book advocates for. It explores the history of ideas of the scientific racialization of emotions in which blackness has been rendered as emotionally excessive and hence criminal and at the same time the book advocates for the right of all people to weep without being subjected to emotional policing um, so that that's where uh, the title comes from yeah this is really yeah I would say un underpinning for the uh, for all the chapters. Um, uh, may I cite you? A mother and a daughter, drums, suckling, drums, revolution. She can hear the drums, they beat as one, dance and sing. I can hear her song. It lifts the dust from the ground. Hope her song can be hers. Cannot hear it herself. She's angry. I am angry. 
she's loved. This is really, um, yeah, really a special way of uh, underpinning a scientific um, study as yours um, with this uh, creative writing. Um, Thank you so much. But maybe we can come come back to to this uh, specific um, characterization of um, black emotions. Um, so. Um, may I cite you again? You're, you're you're stating that blackness is only entirely black if it fails uh, at some point of your book. And in scientific discourses, the black body is character characterized through a paradoxon, so it feels too intensively, according to um, according to former scholars, and and yet it does not feel at all. And that is. Is understood to be resistant to all sorts of pain. Um, um, how in, is this ambiguous depiction of black emotional nature maintained uh, through history? Um, this kind of uh, yeah, really paradox or ambiguous um, characterization. So precisely, my book, above all, argues that blackness was fatally marked with the synchronicity of emotional impulsivity, emotional resilience, and also deceptive emotional performativity. And I argue that this ambivalence strategically fuels inescapable emotional policing and is therefore the driving force of the racialization and perpetuation of genocidal enslavement um, to our current day. In other words, this discursive ambivalence increasingly proclaims the emotional criminality of black existence. And can you can you name some some more come in your in your book? You're citing um, a lot of examples. Um, for example, um, Herder also um, philosopher who who depicts. Uh, children as to as majoring too quickly and too late at the same time this um this ambivalence between maturity and maturity um feeling feeling to feel like em emotions that exceed uh feeling too intensely uh or also maybe we can talk later about this um dissimulating um false uh, emotions um um, yeah, can you can you name an uh, example um, for for this kind of ambivalent um, characterization of um, of black bodies in history? Yes, so this is pervasive throughout all of the majority of the texts that I explore of scientific racism of both um, fueling this you know tension of a representation of emotional impulsivity, but at the same time, a deceptive emotional performativity that becomes a contingency. And therefore, this specific contingency is very, very dangerous because it therefore creates an inescapable emotional policing. Because it's either that, the, that blackness is feeling too intensely and it's, it lacks self-control, uh, blackness um, is, is not able to have any uh, manifestation of self-government, but at the same time, scientific racism emphasizes on this contingency of that proclaimed that blackness could be very calculated about emotions. And so therefore this leads to an inescapable scrutiny over emotions, over black emotions, because either emotions are demonstrative of the emotional deficiency of um, black communities, or um, it's a, uh, you know, it, it at the same time fuels and, and, and produces, not produces, engenders disbelief, um, institutional disbelief, right? So it's either, uh, you know, it, what it, it sets up is 
it, it elevates the colonizing gaze as the one that is able to identify either a colonial and racialized other that is either feeling too intensely or lying about emotions. So therefore it sets up white rationality as having a monopoly over um, being able to intellectualize emotions, particularly the emotions of racialized others. Mm -hmm. well, that's interesting, the, the way you just described um, this uh, emotional stylization, this uh, inescapability um, is something that applies uh, in, in to, to the ancient world, uh, both to ancient world as to to politics, uh, to current politics uh, nowadays, um, or is there like the development of emotional differentiation is something you're, you're tracing also in your book, but um, yeah, this, this inescapability was shaped also by philosophers, biologists, naturalists, um, who, who depicted the Uh, infantilization or animalization of, of black emotions in scientific discourses. Um, um, also, for example, Carl Linnaeus uh, with his taxonomies, um, racial, racialist uh, taxonomies um, of different um, of different emotions, um, different races. Um, so how the question is how should we or academic institutions um, approach texts uh, by these famous thinkers um, given their inherent racist implications um, yes well mainstream mainstream education still either erases complete elements of the intellectual production of exponents of scientific racism or frames the topic within a framework of obscene devil's advocacy within classrooms, therefore perpetrating harm on students of color, particularly in STEM and social sciences, there is a tendency to discuss the history of science, medicine, and, and statistics through presumed quote-unquote achievement-based curricula. Uh, in other words, uh, narrating Uh, the history of science through, you know, the centrality of white thinkers commemorating white-centric scientific production and therefore further perpetuating medical racism because their theories promote um, that specific, uh, you know, those specific foundational elements of the history of science. So even the humanities portray racist thinkers, uh, you know, and, and I'm talking, of course, within unsaved spaces, but there has been a history of, within the humanities, the portrayal of racist thinkers as having a duality between the quote-unquote positive and the quote-unquote negative parts of their legacy. When racism was central to their intellectual production, so therefore, the allusions to racism are added as a footnote instead of actually discussing the fact that racism was central to their work. Um, and so to compartmentalize the work of these thinkers is to selectively perpetrate historiographical erasure about the motives of their intellectual production. And as a scholar, I contend that texts of scientific racism should be contextualized as they were. Highly influential texts with a key purpose to sustain white supremacy and genocidal violence. As teachers, we should, you know, as educators, we should foster safe spaces. We should represent the history of ideas without erasure. And we should engage with more imaginative pedagogy than traditional approaches that are centering the notion of the narrative, the grand narrative, quote unquote, of white achievement. Um, and this is an integral part of decolonizing academia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, 
while reading your book, I was also wondering, because sometimes um, these are, it's like um, international, global problems of uh, contextualization that that failed until uh, nowadays. Um, but also, I was wondering if this is a kind of a specific um, US, um, say US discourse as well. Um, um, maybe we can talk uh, talk later about this as well uh, regarding um, social media debate, for example, and uh, as as you call it, white um, allyship. Um, so, is, would you say that this is also something um, specific um, specific problem in in US um, stating yeah stating um, Oh no, no, my, my, uh, you know, the, the framework or in other words, the scope of my book is the scope of the Atlantic, the his the intellectual history of the Atlantic world. Um, so what I'm referring, because even in my book, I do address the criticism that I've just made surrounding the contextualization of these proponents of scientific racism within academia, um, I'm referring to a, a transnational um, conflict that, that just pervades academia and that also is strongly connected to, you know, whenever um, there are specific institutions that portray themselves as post-racial and yet center the voices of the people that have inflicted this harm um, of the exponents and advocates of scientific racism so um so indeed my my book is making this criticism within the context of academia in the atlantic world and and also it's uh denouncing Particularly, this framework when uh, within institutions that portray themselves as post-racial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, to 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 continue with um, uh, because we were just talking um about these famous thinkers um um and you are also citing Aristotle's uh differentiation of rational and irrational parts of the soul so we have this kind of body and soul distinction um you're visiting descartes and his theory of rationalism which obviously shaped also the dichotomy of white rationalism that governs its emotion and black uh, i quote excessive emotionalism prone to passions uh, as stated by these thinkers and not able to Uh, govern itself uh, and must therefore be educated and guided um, so um, this narrative um, um, I was wondering if, if concepts for example of um, meter of, of auto-reflection uh, or concepts like alterity is for example by uh, by the philosopher Montaigne um, play any role in, in the propagation and propaganda of, of Atlantic slavery? Yes, well, um, focusing on the emotional othering in itself, in my book, I discuss how historically um, the projection of the absence of emotional self-government in the enslaved, that discourse was used to portray the institution of slavery as a institution of emotional tutelage. Um, and I discuss how even the history of ideas of white abolitionism was grounded on the emotional, uh, on emotional othering in order to uphold racial capitalism. Um, white abolitionism was much more enamored with racial capitalism than any actual anti-slavery commitment. And racialized othering of feelings was key to the advocacy for the normalization of structural racism. Emotional, the, the projection of the emotional otherness of the enslaved pervades the history of 
the um, escalation of slavery, the globalization of slavery, and the resellization of slavery uh, in the Atlantic world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At some point of your book, you are also arguing that there was never a collective white project to abolish these this emotional economy premised on racial exploitation. Um, just, so it's just about the the uphold um, of a racialized uh, economy. Indeed, both white abolitionism and anti-abolitionism were driven by the political intent to vindicate white capitalist family formations as emotionally superior and as rightfully emotionally dominant, regardless of whether this vindication was enacted through black enslavement or through the legal facade of quote-unquote emancipation. So there was indeed never a white intellectual movement to abolish the emotional economy's premise on racialized slavery. On the contrary, the intentionality was to further standardize um, racial capitalism. And uh, a question that relates uh, to this is also that um, this anti-black, which is not truly anti-black um you're stating this as well that history has shown that anti-slavery does not preclude from being anti-black or being truly anti-slavery um Mm -hmm. so how does this manifest itself in intellectual history yes well in the intellectual history of scientific racism there have been many proponents of scientific racism that at some point um, expressed anti-slavery thought. Um, Some of them, rationalizations, were the deterrence of interracial interaction or the pointlessness, quote-unquote, of legal slavery. But all of them were racist. And the purpose of their intellectual production was to perpetuate and uphold white supremacy. Um, And they all argued for the dehumanization and exploitation of racialized groups and for it to be systemized. Um, It's just that the ones that were advocating that that were denominationally quote-unquote anti-slavery were... uh, looking at the standardization or institutionalization of slavery in ways that were different from those that were pro-slavery. But at the end of the day, they were simply denominationally anti-slavery because um, there was no commitment to liberation if the advocacy was for the dehumanization and exploitation of racialized groups. Yeah, I think in in your book, you're... You're setting a lot of examples for this kind of um, anti-slavery, but still um, upholding of of, um, of of structures of, of racial um, racialist order. Um, there's one one question I want to ask you. So, um, because now we we're talking about um, like the black the the blackness black body. Um, fetishized and uh, exoticized also throughout uh, history. Um, but is there an explicit moment in history when discourses on slavery um, had been intrinsically tied to blackness? Yes, well, in my book, I argue that the emotional justifications of slavery in the history of ideas of the ancient and the, the ancient world and the medieval world were the intentional driving force and intellectual framework for the early modern racialization of slavery. Since for opportunistic empires, blackness incarnated the quote-unquote identifiable biological difference of the quote-unquote naturally enslaved as advocated within the ancient and within ancient and medieval philosophy and intellectual production, and therefore, the, the, that blackness incarnated the fatal mark of emotional criminality. And from then on, the history of ideas has powerfully entangled 
enslavement and blackness. Mm-hmm. So ancient and medieval um, thought also paved paved the way for modern um, modern racialist discourses um, uh, um, regarding the uh, biological or geographical determinism. Um, you're you're also um, explaining that in your book. Um, can you can you explain a bit further um, this um, this different um, determinism and history? Uh, Ge- geographical determinism on on one hand um um for for example this um theory of uh, hotter climates that uh, provoked an um from crowd expanded spirit and on the other hand um biological determinism uh, that goes to the direction of of hygienic uh, politics yes so there are three key, key currents of of scientific racism Well, biological determinism claimed that different, quote-unquote, racial categories had different biological compositions. Geographical determinism reached the same racial hierarchy by arguing that climate completely was it completely took over the development of the nature, quote-unquote, of populations. Um, so within this argument, or within this claim, people from hotter climates were being depicted as, um, and are still depicted to this day, as being more, quote-unquote, indolent, or being more, quote-unquote, emotionally erratic, or being more or variable, emotionally variable. Um, and also uh, the, the portrayal of an unbridled sexuality. Um, meanwhile, historical determinism argued that different racial categories um, are were in different stages uh, of historical development and therefore that to examine or study racialized groups was to gain information from the origins of humanity Um, and all of these ideas pervade emotional archetypes today they pervade um, the racialized criminality they pervade carceral landscapes Um, regarding the latter um, would you consider um, modern U.S. prison landscape and mass incarceration is a direct evolution of um, Atlantic sla- slavery. So my book contends that racialized mass incarceration is a direct evolution from the legal quote-unquote abolition, and I say quote-unquote because abolition has never happened, uh, but the quote-unquote legal abolition of slavery Um, Therefore, standardizing state-sanctioned slavery grounded on Black emotional policing. It is therefore the preservation of slaveholding genocidal violence and racialized emotional criminalization, which conceives Blackness as quote-unquote emotionally violent, as spontaneously quote-unquote provoking institutional distrust and brutal penalization. It is fundamentally the institutionalization of the presumed failure of blackness to achieve emotional self-government. This um, uh, rhetoric that that obviously worked on history also and culminates into the perspective of undesired aftermath of the legal abolition Uh, abolition of slavery, um, abolition that actually never happened, uh, as you just said. Um, how how did this uh, um, inversional rhetoric uh, worked out uh, for history and uh, yeah, denouncing um, th- yeah, uh, ending up also in in a sort of concrete white slavery uh, uh, and black fear. Um, Uh, how did this work out, this rhetoric? Um, yeah. 
The discourse of white slavery, quote unquote, has precisely historically projected whiteness as in peril after the legal, quote unquote, abolition of slavery in order to, number one, hide the fact that abolition has never happened, and number two, to uphold white emotional supremacy. This discourse has guided the intellectual history of international law and media representation of slavery, and now, quote-unquote, human trafficking, um, to this day. Now, I comment that we also see this rhetoric today with conservative thought about, quote-unquote, woke culture and, quote-unquote, cancel culture. Um, this rhetoric is also a projection of white innocence, quote-unquote, being persecuted by, quote-unquote, excessive racialized feelings. Um, so, indeed. As you were dedicating a larger part on this in your book, the scenario you just mentioned, um, the Haitian Revolution is a notable example how French colonizers auto-depicted themselves as victims of unbearable black violence caused during the revolutionary upheavals. Um, can you explain this a little bit further, this specific historical example? Yes, so my book explores the Haitian Revolution as a case study um, of how the revolutionary movements of the enslaved were projected um, by primary sources in the intellectual history of slavery in the Atlantic world. And within this specific case study, we see that the Haitian, that the Haitian revolution and the revolutionary thought that was tied to it um, and you know, its connection to black resistance and black leadership, political leadership, um, was portrayed as a conflict that emerged from transgressive passions. Um, if we look at the sources, the sources personify emotions as instigating uh, the actual movement as a way to you know, in multiple ways, uh, minimize the victories, enslaved victories within the Haitian Revolution to minimize and silence, marginalize, erase um, revolutionary thought and to emphasize um, black emotionality as criminal. In other words, personifying uh, emotions as enacting the conflict in itself and therefore continue to mobilize these discourses that are centered in the emotional criminalization of blackness. Still, there was intellectual projection by enslaved people, and, and, and you're mentioning this in, in your book as well, in 20th century. Um, I was uh, thinking about that uh, theory by, um, by um, Auerbach um, of spotlighting, where Uh, actually a literary uh, theory where a small part is overlit while a large part is kept in the dark. So although it would present an important counterweight, um, so seemingly telling the truth, the theory implicates the, the omission of the whole truth. And this is uh, uh, what I was thinking about while reading uh, the, the examples in, in your book um, uh, regarding uh, racialized uh, um racialist um, discourses in, in history and uh, can you what are the most crucial examples of, of slavery history marginalized events or so-called uh, non-events for you yes so as mentioned my book explores the the quote-unquote non-event of the haitian revolution um, but something that my book also briefly mentions is that how even the historiographical and intellectual erasure of the Haitian Revolution goes even further and erases so many figures within the revolution in itself. Um, how, for example, the, uh, the actual intellectual production 
of black enslaved women within the Haitian Revolution has been um, so, uh, you know, exceedingly uh, silenced within um, academic pursuits. But this is just one more gap in the context of the overall institutional silencing of Black history and studies uh, in historiography, uh, in higher education curricula, and in public memory. I would say that the intellectual history or the history of ideas of racialized slavery as a whole has been structurally silenced in public memory particularly the intellectual production of the enslaved. Um, and, and my book um, engages with narratives of the enslaved, for example, that have some of them have been structurally uh, marginalized, even within historiography. My interest in the history of ideas of slavery was partly first sparked by the thought that in all of my education, you know, this is when I was a graduate student, in all of my education, I had been fed the notion that millions of thinkers contributed absolutely nothing to the history of ideas, that millions of enslaved thinking people contributed absolutely nothing to the history of ideas. So my indignation made me a historian of ideas. So it's, it's, if we think about in the way that cultural appropriation, quote unquote, is talked about today, um, I prefer to use the concept intellectual appropriation personally. Um, so I will continue using that notion. Um, and so if we think about intellectual appropriation, and I'm just going to give an example, the way that it's talked about within the context of music, something that has happened is that there has been so much erasure of the how foundational black music is to so many genres of music and also of dance that, you know, um, public discourse will mention the uh, and and of course talking about the um, I'm talking specifically about music by the enslaved and how it's foundational to the intellectual history of music and so when we think about the impact of the intellectual production of the enslaved within music when it is usually called out within discourse if is if there is intellectual appropriation within hip hop or reggaeton or um, R&B in specific, right? But if we talk about, you know, there has been an erasure of how foundational um, the intellectual production of the enslaved is, you know, within the framework of rock music, for example, or contemporary dance. Um, and... This is just an example. So if we think about the actual intellectual production of millions of enslaved people that had the burden of exploitative work, and that therefore when we think about the intellectual history of racial capitalism, the way that the story is told within academia and within public discourse you know, when we think about the way that intellectual history is communicated to the public, it's the idea that the people that held the capital, the people that generated capital because they were exploiting others, were the ones that were intellectually productive. They were the ones that were generating ideas. And then there's this vast erasure. So that specific thought when I was a graduate student was like, wow. That's the key to the perpetuation of, of racial oppression today. And so that made me think a lot about how um, it was central to produce intersectional uh, histories of ideas. Yeah. Well, um, this is also one point which astonished me while reading your book, um, this... Um, 
uh, notion of white history that lies, um, that slanders the existence and persistence of inequality uh, due to a racialized political economy, uh, a racialized uh, uh, emotional um, economy, um, which which is still yeah to 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 this day is uh, is persisting uh, and uh, to to go on um, with um, um, with the next question maybe um, so the um, uh, Hollywood media production advertising industry um, social media um, are dominated as well by this uh, disproportionality of white and black narratives um, echoing often historic determinism and promoting racialized and fetishized imagery. Um, what are the most evident examples for an, for an ongoing racialized emotional slavery? And, um, and uh, another question that uh, um, that uh, I want to, uh, like to, to ask you is how should media uh, with the clear narrative of of black otherness um, be assessed. Um, but yeah, first of all, uh, uh, what are the most evident examples for, for this ongoing racialized emotional slavery <coughs> for you? Yes, so uh, in terms of examples, the, the media archetypes of racialized emotions are very pervasive and identifiable um, today, such as the quote-unquote angry black woman archetype and the quote-unquote Latin lover archetype. Um, the Latin lover archetype, um, I, I would like to make a comment that it affects Afro-Latine community, communities the most. Um, but these just two, these two examples are, are both fueled by white institutional design. In other words, by this agenda for Black emotional criminalization and exploitation. And in terms of how to assess and think deeply about this media, uh, I would like to emphasize that the recent intellectual production of mainstream media has generated capital through the commodification of racialized emotional differentiation. And Black pain has been fetishized for consumption as entertainment. Um, the pervasive archetypes about black feelings in the recent media representation have consecrated and further legitimized the emotional surveillance of black communities and have even escalated this surveillance as a, as a lucrative product for mass, mass consumption. And so I think that, that uh, it's important to take into consideration those stakes. Your book also state that this voyeurism um um is yeah is uh d dominating in in all these kind of media production and um social media uh and th this does not contribute at all uh to to a new narrative um yeah yeah this is something we already talked about as well but um, maybe we could could explain a little bit further also how this system of emotional differentiation and um, dichotomy of right rational purity from quote, from quote, black emotional generation um, still still working, still works. Yes, so this dichotomy, actually, I, I, I would like to focus on something very recent. This dichotomy was evidence in the media representation of Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020. The emotional criminalization of Black rage, quote-unquote, is blatant when protesting and, quote-unquote, looting are signified as more excessive and violent than structural anti-Blackness. Within the specific juncture of the media representation of the Black Lives Matter protests, social media and media in general also centered white voices in the alleged emotional quote-unquote reckoning with racism as if they just found out that anti-blackness exists there was a lot of representation of alleged 
you know, uncomfortable conversations, quote unquote, for white families, um, centering the idea that conversations about racism are more difficult for those in privilege than those that actually suffer the pain and the consequences of racism. So even within the context of institutional conversations about anti-racism um, and conversations about racial justice, white emotionality is represented by structures of power as guided by rationality and emotional self-control and therefore entitled to dominating, to dominate is what I'm trying to say, to dominate the conversation and to be worthy of endearing curiosity surrounding the emotional, uh, again, quote-unquote, reckoning of whiteness with racism. So intellectual history is, is to blame for that. I think this is also an expression you, you used in your book. Uh, can, can we blame intellectual history um, for this kind of uh, recurrent, um, recurrent storytelling um, of, uh, say, white supremacy. Yes, well, um, as, as a historian of, of, um, of ideas, I see everything through, through, that, through that scope and uh, through that framework is what I mean, or through that lens. And that's the way that I'm uh, framing my book. So within my book, my argument is that precisely ideas about the quote-unquote emotional deficiency of blackness within the the with the rhetoric or, or the discourse of the ambivalence that we already discussed um, has been key to the uh, upholding of or protection would be the correct word the quote unquote protectioners of safeguarding of quote unquote white happiness and that notion of white happiness quote unquote being completely propelled by and 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 framed by black suffering um which is of course something that in my book i explain more in depth mm -hmm. um White happiness. Um, this is uh, something which leads me also to, to another question. Um, is the, this white happiness um, in contrast to to the black uh, black emotions which are um, racialized, um, distinguished at that um, say um, this kind of black happiness or Black love does not exist in in the metaphorical storytell um, white storytelling. Um, so the the, um, the importance of um, emotional metaphors in, in public discourses um, as well is, is something which is um, which is really important in in, in your book. Uh, it seems to me. Um, also um, these examples about. Uh, Uh, heart, heart, and love as uh, as metaphors for um, for diff for different uh, sorts of uh, of feeling um, of emotional expression. Um, for, for example, I, I cite this this sort of um, propaganda and slogans as "Can slaves be happy?" Uh, for, for example, um, this is really uh, yeah. These metaphors in public discourse is also something you you explore very well in, in all of your chapters uh, and mostly uh, I'd say in, in the last chapter on contemporary slavery um, also this this uh, um, metaphors and public discourses uh, and how, how that how this is still uh, emotional um, something is still existing uh, these emotional metaphors uh, yeah yeah and, and I would emphasize yes I, I would emphasize that within the context of racialized slavery um, and particularly within the context of 18th, 19th century uh, racialized slavery, um, there was a, a slave-holding emphasis of the transience of Black grief. The idea that Black grief was transient 
and and that's uh, something that I do emphasize in the third chapter of my book, um, because the portrayal was that the institution of slavery actually did uphold a black happiness, um, but that black grief, which you know, the actual visualization of grief is a key part of humanization, and that's a key part that slaveholders targeted by concept by emphasizing on the emotional resilience of the enslaved by conceptualizing black grief as non-devotional as non as uh, not being grounded on love yeah that's interesting that's an interesting point um um also also this kind of structure um or you're mentioning this in your book um, that a white protagonist needs a black antagonist, um, which uh, ex explains uh, uh, on point, I'd say, um, this emotional um, structure, racialist structuring um, throughout uh, centuries. Um, maybe we can talk about um, how contemporary slavery also um echoed uh, scientific racism um which brings me to to my next question um so how does um contemporary slavery um seems even more perverse considering the um, ambivalent legal formulations and in your book here you're talking about uh, the example of uh, the 1926 and 1956 slavery conventions uh, and also about the um, Palem Protocol uh, in the year 2000. And, and as you're claiming in your book that um, I cite the nomenclature of racialist slavery became sentimentalist, its visibility unspoken by capitalist structures of power, uh, and the quote, um, in which period of history um, are we witnesses of the most um, exclusive, let's say, white storytelling? And um, or can we argue that intellectual production of enslaved in 20th century contributed to a vision of the imperial narrative? Uh, but this kind of um, yeah, legal formulations uh, uh, that in the end contributed to the uphold of, uh, of a persisting racialist structure um, yeah, maybe you can explain a little bit more these uh, these historic examples you are citing in your book. Yeah, so uh, yeah, recent international law on contemporary slavery, such as the Slavery Conventions and the 2000 Palermo Protocol, uh, embody the triumph of both the mythology or the narrative of the quote-unquote abolition of sin, but in addition to that, the uh, the notion of white slavery in itself, quote-unquote, uh, because the what I mentioned, you know, something that I emphasize in my book or highlight is that the notion of quote-unquote white white slavery is both premised on black criminalization. Uh, portraying whiteness as, as in peril, which is something that I already mentioned. But in addition to that, um, what it does is to appropriate um, the emotionality, uh, the, you know, it, to do an emotional appropriation of a black struggle, right? So therefore, uh, portraying the history of the racialization of slavery as culminating in the subjugation of whiteness in this persecution of whiteness and therefore appropriating emotionality uh, you know, appropriating the right to be emotional about enslavement um now within the context of the intellectual production of the enslaved in the 20th century uh, i would say that that just as there has been historical erasure, genocidal violence, and intellectual appropriation uh, driven by white emotional supremacy over storytelling, 
there has also been perpetual black intellectual production and activism that has denounced eugenicist emotional policing. Hence, the revolutionary voices of the enslaved, both historical and current, should be centered in the contemporary anti-slavery movement as they represent the key disruption of empire. Another example um, for for that um, is the the human trafficking uh, narrative. Yeah, maybe we can we can come to 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 our last question. Um, that after revisiting um, ancient ancient world um, production, after visiting the eighteenth and nineteenth century. Um, cultural production uh, of, um, of racialist uh, um, emotional s slavery and to 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 this day um, what what would you say um, is racialist thought and enslaving economy a never-ending project um, and how do you imagine the the future of black emotional policing um, I'm I'm not I'm not that sure because uh, like the conclusion of your book um is uh, is kind of um yeah this uh, difficult to say if it's a pessimistic or rather optimistic optimistic conclusion would be exaggerated uh this is kind of interesting because this is really um like the message of of your book really echoes um this uh, what what would be your your perspective your future perspective on um on this emotional policing and yeah and mostly um would would you say yeah. that racialist thought and slaving economy is a never ending project um so there there are no yes there there are no quick fixes or solutions for white emotional supremacy because it is not in the interest or profit of racial capitalism for there to be an end to racialized emotional policing, since it is truly its core. Therefore, the liberation movement has the complex challenge to fight against the symbiotic relationship between emotional carcerality and racial capitalism, because one cannot end without the other ending as well. Um, so it is indeed, you know, I, in my understanding as a scholar, you know, because of my own research, one could affirm as a historian that history as a whole is the history of violence and that we aspire to see a world in which violence is not intrinsic to, uh, to every single interaction of power. But that this is, of course, aspirational, right? So the way that I see it as a scholar, racial capitalism has been at the core of, it has been the crux of the history of ideas. So therefore, my intention is not to be pessimistic. It is to go against the post-racial narrative. That's the intention of my book, to really push back against the idea that racism is more subtle today or that things are so much better. It's to really denounce the fact that racial capitalism is the crux of power today and that it entails reformulation of dynamics of, of, of how, you know, the power dynamics and the connection between ideas and dynamics of power. Um, but within all of this, I still, and I hope that my book does transmit this in some way, see so much power to Black resistance and the Black resistance movement and so much community, and so much uh, purpose and belonging. Um, it's just, I hope that my analogy with the notion of violence helped clarify how I see things, but 
I just in no way want to minimize the foundational nature of racial capitalism to how the world works today. Yeah, thank you, Professor Gutara Cordero, for uh, for for these um, for these in-depth insights into the racialized slavery and this the shift from uh, Black Lives Matter. Everyone, uh, uh, this viral movement of Black Lives Matter <coughs> that you you're shifting, transforming into Black Tears Matter. Um, so after your closing word, one last question that remains: um, What are your next projects? Yes, well, I plan to continue pursuing the topic of the influence of the intellectual history of science in contemporary racism in my future scholarship. And so I'm currently working on two manuscripts uh, about the history of ideas of scientific racism, one being focused on the intellectual history of scientific anti-blackness and the other being a global intellectual history of scientific racism. Thank you, Professor Gutera Cordero. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so, so, so much for, for this invitation and, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Mm -hmm.